Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Kathy Downey. Kathy has always felt a deep, soulful connection with the animals who share our world. As a little girl, she rescued stray cats and dogs along with fuzzy caterpillars. When she learned that a local pet cemetery was to be raised to make room for a highway off-ramp, the 11-year-old wrote to her local newspaper and appeared before town officials and asked that they reconsider. The MSPCA Pet Cemetery in Methuen, Mass. remains today a special place for pet guardians to visit the grave sites of their departed animal companions. Kathy's early advocacy informed her adult life. When she moved to Newburyport in 1992, she began volunteering for the newly established Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society as a feral cat feeder, a caregiver for community cats. She's participated in several Massachusetts animal protection legislative campaigns, including Ban the Steel Jaw Leg Hold Trap Initiative, which passed in 1996 to ban the use of body gripping devices to eradicate wildlife two Gray 2K campaigns, the second of which in 2008 successfully banned the cruel sport of greyhound racing in the state, and most recently working with Citizens for Farm Animal Protection, the 2016 Massachusetts Ballot Initiative, to which now bans the use of cruel farm animal confinements. Kathy also advocates for federal legislation for the protection of animals. As a journalist, Kathy has worked as a correspondent for regional publications, profiling people in the community, and writing feature articles, highlighting animal protection and environmental causes whenever the opportunity arose. For seven years, she wrote the newsletter and fundraising appeals for the MRFRS and is the author of Mickey's Story, Point of View from a Feral Cat. She also wrote a regional book, Legendary Locals of Newburyport, published in 2014, which includes a profile of Mickey and another of the founders of MRFRS. Since early 2016, Kathy has been researching and writing primate profiles for New England Primate Conservancy, raising awareness to help prevent the extinction of non-human primates who share our world. She also serves on the NEPC education team. Kathy, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. So Kathy and I, obviously, we've known each other for years, and uh, we've been through many, many board meetings and many visioning workshops and lots of conversations uh, about the work that, that you have done in the Newburyport area, along with many others. But I just was wondering if you could share with us how you got started with Community Cats and how you got started in the early days. Well, as you know, I moved to Newburyport in March of 1992. And shortly thereafter, I learned about MRFRS. In fact, it was, I think it was during Yankee Homecoming, the annual celebration throughout the city. And MRFRS had a booth there. And a couple of the early volunteers, actually Nancy McNeil was there. She's one of the founders. And, you know, I said, what is this about the cats in this community? And she told me about the MRFRS. And I, I expressed interest in volunteering. And so pretty much I started volunteering shortly after that. Nancy and her husband, Bob, showed me down the waterfront of Newburyport, where we had about seven cats or so down there at the time. We had three different speeding stations, and that's where I began. 
So before you met them at the booth, did you have any idea that there were stray cats that needed help in the Newburyport area? I did not. I did not. It's kind of funny you say that when I moved to, uh, when I moved to Newburyport, I had one cat. And I always thought it would be nice to, um, I don't know, have some more cats, be involved with cats in some way. So it was kind of fate for some of it because shortly thereafter, I became involved with many other cats. <laughs> became very busy. It's it's interesting. We, you know, so many of us who are in the cat world, I guess I would say, I just spent this past weekend at a conference about marketing having nothing to do with cats. And so I'm talking with people and they're like, really, I had no idea that could be a problem with too many cats out there. So there's still so much education and outreach that needs to happen to be able to inform people that cats need help because they're not going to offer assistance to help if they don't know that there is a need. Exactly. In fact, as you said, you remind me of, um, right, well, before I learned of MRFRS, I was working on the boardwalk shortly after moving to the city, and a couple of cats came out, you know, just came out, came out of the bushes of shadows, and I, I remember trying to call them over, come on, come over, and and a couple of people walking by had said, oh, no, you know, those are wild cats, you don't want to, you don't want to get near them, and, and I said, really? And so... I kind of saw the first the first cats in the report before I became involved and didn't know about what was all this colony and there were cats everywhere. Um, I do recall before moving to the city, many years before, being at Michael's Harborside, sitting outdoor on the uh, deck in the summer, and there being kittens there. So, but again, like all this stuff kind of coalesced. I didn't really realize it was there were colonies here or or anything about that until until I met the Ameriprise founders down at Yankee Homecoming, and then I became involved. And what was your experience like? I mean, was this a really positive experience making change in Newburyport? Was it tough? Was it hard? What were the early days like? It was, was been very positive. I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, I love, I mean, I still feed cats one day a week, a feral station in Newbury. But at that time, as you know, we had many, many cats in Newburyport and along the waterfront, but a couple of stations in town as well. And it was great. I mean, it became my life. I mean, I think I was regularly feeding three days a week, um, three mornings or Monday, Wednesday and Friday were my days. And, and, but even without my scheduled days for feed, we had a whole crew of volunteers who took different shifts, you know, so they were fed twice a day, the cats and we had shelters. Um, but even when it wasn't my days to feed, I would find myself just walking down to visit the cats, um, especially Mickey. Mickey was our, um, we called him our feral cat mascot and he was down at the boatyard and a lot of times, even after out with friends in the evening, I would just stop. I would cut through the boatyard, and before I went home, I'd walked home. I would sit there and just hang out with Mickey. So they became they became family, really. They became family to me. So at the end of this show, we're gonna read Mickey's story in honor of the holiday season. But can you tell me even a little bit more about Mickey? What was the connection with him? Well, Mickey was um, what do you call him? Right personable cat <laughs> with a purr he may have been somebody's cat at one time he wasn't wild 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 but he was very much um self-possessed and he was and all the other cats deferred to him so he kind of was the boss of the boatyard and and even when he traveled a few short blocks i remember once to the we had a, a colony of cats over the post office and it went for he mickey disappeared for one summer and for several weeks we couldn't find him and and then we found him over at the post office colony, just hanging out there. And I think Newburyport was was busy. Was, there were a lot of things going on. And for whatever reason, he just got out of the boatyard for a while. And he just went to the other colony and he took over. I mean, the cats there was their spot, but 
they deferred to him. So he was just um, a great cat, and he would allow you to pet him, and he wanted to visit you. I mean, one of the hardest things was when he would almost, like, follow me, like, follow me like as he's following me home. And, yeah, it was hard leaving him there, but yet he, um, it was his turf. It was his turf. Toward the end of his life, um, he actually was found retirement. One of our great volunteers, Daphne Neville, she took him in, and he did spend out his last year in uh, retirement. So I was pleased about that. There are a lot of challenges, though, when you're working with a colony. As it starts, you're focused on getting everybody spayed and neutered. And if there are friendlies, you're deciding whether they should go into an adoption center, be put up for adoption or foster home. And then as the colony ages, there's a lot of questions and conversations that happens. Do you sort of remember that period of time when we were talking about retiring a lot of these cats? Oh, yes. I remember. <laughs> I remember. And, and you're right. And it is difficult because there were some different points of view as far as, you know, should we bring these cats in? Should we not? And, you know, it got very um, well, passionate, should we say, the conversations. But you know, another volunteer would express surprise about this, but yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised because we all love the cats and we're all very passionate and we all want what's best. And so but we might have different ideas about what's best. And my point of view, it, it comes down to the individual cat, even though we want to act best on the behalf. And, and some of them, I can think of a few that came in that they acclimated so well to being in. It was almost like they were like, whew, thank you. But they were, you know, older cats and they were getting more frail being outside. And so it worked out well. Um, but I think we had to consider, yeah, to consider the cat or also sometimes th- bigger things get, um, we have to consider. So at the end of 2004, we actually end up trapping the remaining cats in the boatyard to bring them for retirement. And the reason we did that is because at that time, the boatyard was unscheduled to be further developed. So essentially, their habitat was going to be either taken away or greatly disturbed. So we thought, well, it's best to act now to get them into. We had volunteers who knew the cats had been outside forever and who were giving, giving them a chance in their home just to let them be and not put any demands on them. So we acted swiftly to, to capture humanely the remaining kitties to bring them in. We also had to do that earlier with uh, Toll down farther down on the water. We had to do that. And that was before the days of the drop trap, I believe. And I think that one of our trappers founders, Jan, made some crazy contraption to try and catch the last cats. I don't know if you remember that sort of saga, but I specifically remember somebody created something unique to get the last cats. Yeah, it was that. I do remember that. Um, Jan was able to trap several of them, but but you're right, there were a couple that she just, no matter what she did, she just could not capture them. So it was actually a person, because they, you know, redeveloped, the, the building had been vacant for many years, and they were developing it and rehabbing it. So it was actually one of the um, the supervisors of the work crew. He fashioned a big drop trap. It wasn't, he, he made it himself, and I want to say was, he was in Portugal originally, because he, he told Jan the story about trapping pigeons or something. <laughs> he was a kid with, made his own minnow trap, so he told he assured Jan, don't worry, don't worry. I know what to do, and I will capture these kitties for you before we knock down any buildings or do anything like that. And and she was so grateful. I remember she brought his whole crew lunch for a week. Every day she delivered lunch to them, a warm lunch. Yeah, so this gentleman who was in charge of the work crew there, he actually fashioned the trap to capture the cats. Looking for a great tool to help educate your neighbors about community cats? Check out this sign available from the folks at Lumen LS, a life-saving organization from Broward County, Florida, that believes no cat should be left behind. 
This sturdy, bright orange sign featuring an ear-tipped cat would be great for cat colony caretakers, shelters and rescues, spay-neuter clinics, or municipalities and animal control organizations. Education about the correct ways to manage community cats is exploding in the U.S., especially in the last five years. This sign will help you let your community know that ear-tipped cats have been fixed and vaccinated and pose no threat to them. The community cat sign comes complete with all of the hardware you need to post it. Buying and posting the sign will help move animal welfare forward and improve outcomes for cats in your area. You can view and purchase the signs directly from our Facebook page at LuminLS. They also have a colorful informational brochure about community cats plus lots of other resources. Support the Community Cats podcast and LuminLS.org by going to LuminLS on Facebook today. One point that is coming out in our conversation today, which I didn't think it would in any way, shape, or form, is the fact that getting a lot of people involved is really important in helping support community cat programs. You know, the more people that can be involved, the better off that you are going to be for the cats to have support from a variety of different ways, because we all can't do everything. So I think that you make a great point. And we're talking about all these different people who played roles in the lives of these cats at the different stages in their sort of colony life. It's been really good. I mean, we're looked at nationally as one of the most successful programs out there. I mean, well, it's wonderful to have that recognition, but I think what you said is, is absolutely true. In fact, I was thinking that before our call, how how key it is to get, first of all, um, support from the community. Like we had early support of the Chamber of Commerce and, and to legitimize us, but then also to have a strong volunteer base, people lending their time, their talent, um, their passion, because if you only have, you know, one or two people or, you know, trying to do something, your heart's there and it's it's wonderful that you have this passion, but you're going to burn out. And if you're just always operating, I think, in reactive mode, you can never get ahead. It makes it very difficult and so draining. So it's wonderful to have a whole crew of volunteers that take up the slack and just help. So if you met somebody today who was interested in getting involved with starting a new program in their community, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, first, you know, you definitely want to say the support of um, at least one or two vets in the community, some more from your support from your local officials. And then now we have, you know, social media is great and you can reach out to people, which we started back in 1992. We, we didn't have that. And unbeknownst to us, there were maybe some other small factions and groups doing certain things like we were doing, helping the cats, but we had no way of really knowing that. Now you can reach out to people and so many people um, on Facebook that I would say that would be a way to one way to cultivate um, a volunteer base. But so, yes, definitely support from the community leaders and then establish a key volunteer base. Yeah, I agree. agree. And and also being willing to ask for help, build the volunteer base and then nurture and love them make sure that everybody is able to be engaged and communicate. Uh, you have great communication skills and, you know, you write for a living and you're able to be a storyteller and storytelling is so important with social media visually. Now with Instagram, you know, Snapchat, videos, Facebook Live, there's so many different ways to tell your story and everybody loves a good cat video. Um, <laughs> <It's> and- <true. laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) You also have to think about communicating and sharing what your day is like and what kind of help you might need and and just being able to share with others and and not be all alone in this process of trying to to help other cats in the community. Um, But I think communication is really important in being able to keep people engaged. That's why we started that newsletter, you know, so early on in the process. I mean, we probably only had maybe a hundred people on our mailing list when we first started out. But back then we didn't have email, so we had to communicate some way. So we did a written newsletter and that had developed into a a really good tradition. And then we even had a volunteer newsletter at one point in time. Yeah, I remember that. So we really felt that it was important to keep everybody informed about what we were doing. And I think that's still true today. I've actually started working with a group in Chelsea, Mass., and helping them get up and running, doing a focused program specifically in Chelsea. And one of the main things that we're focused on is communication. And the amount of people that have come forward wanting to help has been tremendous. It's been phenomenal. It's I'm, I'm just in shock and awe over it. But if you can get the word out, people will come and they will all want to help. Yeah, getting the word out yeah, is hugely important. If, you, if, some, if you're just on your own out there, trapping all the time, trapping all the time, which is wonderful, but you have to pause and, I guess, like you said, nurture volunteer base, nurture each other, and otherwise you just you just can't do it by yourself. So based on what you've seen over the last 20-plus years with regards to CommunityCats locally in New England and across the country, what do you think life will be like for community cats five or ten years from now? In one sense, for Newburyport, Greater Newburyport, it's, it's good because, in fact, you know, all, our, all the cats we had, I mean— through either retiring our old ferals or through attrition, TNR, trap, neuter, return, everything worked just perfectly. So I think it does work. I think in, in bigger communities, for instance, not too far away, like the Greater Lawrence community or Greater Haverhill, there are a lot more cats. I mean, so many of them. So I think it can work if, like, as you were saying, if people come out and we get all people involved um, from volunteers, from town officials, then I think it can work and it can be good. And also people just, I guess, keeping your citizens, keeping your eyes open. I mean, if we see cats, new cats arrive in a neighborhood kind of thing, if they're, if they seem friendly, I mean, it's important thing is to actually get them humanely trapped. If we can get them into foster care, that kind of thing. So they don't just procreate, Uh, of course, we'll do TNR as well. But I think it depends on where in the country or, and where the locations are for these cats. I mean, it can be good, but it's only going to be as good, I suppose, as the community uh, reception and willingness to help the cats. Yeah. So you're talking about a sustainable model. You want something that's going to be there above and beyond your one or two people's time. And there's so many organizations that are headed up and really operated by, you know, one, two, three people. And if you're committed to a community as sort of a target area, it's really great to expand that group so that then the organization will live beyond you and will always be there. Unfortunately, I think that we are going to still be faced with people abandoning their cats. I wish I could say we could solve that problem, and I hope we do down the road. Maybe that's the next step for us is figuring out a way to prevent folks from abandoning their cats, but we still are going to have a situation with unspayed or neutered cats on the streets. And they may even be quasi-owned cats, you know, or indoor-outdoor-owned cats. 
that people haven't sterilized. And it's important for us to be able to have our programs in place beyond yours and my lifetimes and other people's lifetimes so that then we won't have a population flare up again. Exactly. And I think added to that, just education is so important, not, not just about people sterilizing their cats, which obviously is foremost, but just the um, perception of community cats. Uh, I mean, you know, every now and then you will get like a an alert about somewhere, maybe not even in, in our country. I think New Zealand came up recently about, well, you know, they were going to exterminate all their feral cats. And, and a lot of times the reason is because, oh, well, because, you know, they feral cats kill birds. And really any free roaming cat has the potential of doing that. But there seems to be this um, misconception or prejudice around community cats, which, which we always confer. I love that it's called the community cats now because they are they're citizens of our community. So I think the perception needs to change about these cats. It's similar to um, breed-specific legislation, BSL, to say pit bulls. I'm involved in that right now. I mean, there was such a prejudice against this breed of dog. So it's similar to that with certain communities against feral cats. Fortunately, I think that seems to be narrowing, like more people are becoming more aware, for instance, that trap neuter return works and more receptive of that. But I think it's important to really educate in that line. I agree. Yeah, 100% that education really does need to play a role. And through the writing that you do is a way to help educate folks on what it's like to be a community cat through the eyes of, of Mickey. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask you this one question that I do ask quite a few of my guests, which is, if you saw a stray cat on the street, what would you do? I can tell you that the last two stray cats I saw in my neighborhood, one of them is sitting here next to me right now. <laughs> and the other one is still sleeping on the bed. <laughs> I would first try to determine, you know, if they if these cats had a home. I would try to ask around. if, And if nobody was nobody knew of the cats, I would try to, you know, trap the cat, which I, I've done, which I did humanely trap the cat. And take, take get veterinary care. I mean, I would reach out too, of course, like in fact with the um, my two most recent cats, I reach out through MRFRS and I, I get them um, spayed and neutered and um, I ended up keeping them. Otherwise, I would have tried to find find a home. Yeah. First, you want to find out if really, they really are belong to somebody. And if they don't or no, they sleep like they're not cared for. Um, but yeah, I would try to get them. But, you know, definitely um, contact maybe your local rescue. Like with us, it's MRFRS. It's for people who might need some guidance who don't know, well, gee, they trap a cat. How do I trap a cat? Well, of course, you know, you want to know how to do that. They're a special. They don't have a heart, humane traps. and But maybe you can get some support through your local rescue and how to do that. And then a follow-up plan. Because you always need a follow-up plan because, great, now I caught a cat. What do I do with the cat? So you want to be able to make sure that there's a plan in place for the cat to either be, you know, spayed or neutered if the cat that needs to be, and a place to go. In the very least, if the cat determines to be very feral, very wild, and can't go anywhere, at least if you get the cat sterilized and inoculated, and if you're willing to return the cat to the area that you discover the cat, and basically then just continue to care for this community citizen by feeding and allowing some shelter. So, Kathy, if there are people interested in asking you some follow-up questions or anything like that, how would they find you? I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. So Facebook would probably be the easiest. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I would say just to be passionate. I mean, as far as there are cats in your neighborhood you want to help, be passionate and care and get involved and, and just recognize that these 
stray cats or dogs that you might see in your community, they are citizens, they're citizens of the community, just like you are, just like I am. So respect that and try to help them. Excellent. Kathy, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. And we did talk about Mickey and you did write Mickey's story. Before we do close, you wanted to share a little bit about why you decided you wanted to write his story. And then for the holiday season, folks will be hearing me read the story. Wonderful. Yeah, I actually, I think I wrote Mickey's story back in 1998. And you would actually ask me, Stacey, if I would maybe, um, not not try to start Mickey per se, but we were talking about just a different way to give kind of a profile to our cats in the boatyard or in town. And I said, okay, I'll give that some thought. And I thought about Mickey because... As I said earlier, we consider him our, our kind of our mascot. And I thought it would be kind of a nice thing to shine the spotlight on Mickey and to show what a great cat he was and a great citizen of our community and just share that with the community. So that's how Mickey's story came about. Well, it's great. I had forgotten that I had asked you to do that. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, I'm glad I did. Little did I know that it was going to come back to get at me in 2016. My gosh. It's, it's funny. I do. I talk to a lot of people and I'll be like, well, why did you do this? And they were like, well, you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> See, the power you have. <laughs> well, it, it shows if you don't ask, you're not going to get. Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. I'm, I'm glad that Nikki Stewart came out and, you know, he's forever, forever be remembered. Yes. And he is a link on the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society's website. We do have him there. And so in the show notes, we will make sure there's also a link to the written story so that if people want to be able to uh, print it out and keep it or use it with credit to Kathy for writing it, I'm sure we'd be happy to make sure, you know, we'd like to spread the word because there's a lot more Mickeys out there. And it's great for us all to be able to understand what life is like for a community cat through their eyes. And so, Kathy, thank you again for writing the story. And I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on in the future. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Between Christmas and New Year's, the Community Cats podcast will be resharing some of our podcast greatest hits. We will be back with new shows after January 1st. Thank you again for listening and supporting the show. In honor of the holidays, I would like to read a short story by Kathy Downey called Mickey's Story. My caregivers call me Mickey, and I'm a feral cat. Say the word feral, and a lot of people imagine a rabid, savage feline straight out of a Stephen King novel. What feral really means is to revert to an instinctual, wild state in order to survive. In my case, it simply means that I am homeless. The myth of wild feral cat allows humans to conveniently forget that ferals were once family pets, or are the progeny of discarded pets. But I'm lucky. Most feral cats must scrounge through garbage-strewn alleys and dumpsters for meager scraps of food. They often starve to death or die from disease or exposure due to harsh weather. I belong to a managed feral cat colony. My human caregivers provide food twice each day. I have shelter, and I've been inoculated against diseases. I've also been neutered, and I do not have rabies. The boatyard of a small coastal community is my domain. I've lived here for over seven years along with Rachel, an ashen-colored Persian, and her friend, Pascal, a black-and-white tuxedo type. And then there's Clarence, an orange cross-eyed tabby, and his gentle tiger-striped companion, Precious. Dainty Patches and shy Cremora also make their home here. Each morning, I wait outside of Mickey's galley for my breakfast to arrive. As far as I know, I'm the only feral who greets my caregivers with a throaty, extended meow and who allows my head to be scratched. 
I even let one or two of them comb my thick gray coat. The other cats remain timid and keep a watchful but grateful eye as their food is delivered. At least two mornings a week, we dine on sardines, and on the weekends, our evening meal is complemented with a treat of catnip, which I always enjoy. In return for our care, we keep the rodent population under control. The local restauranteurs whose establishments line the riverfront are thankful for our contribution. We work quietly and efficiently and out of sight of tourists as unseen feline ambassadors of the boatyard. I have only vague memories of the human family who abandoned me, but I clearly remember my overwhelming fright and loneliness when they opened the car door, placed me on the ground, and drove away. Whenever a new cat is callously dumped here, I recognize the look of terror and betrayal on its face. Usually, our caregivers are able to rescue the bewildered cat while it still has some remaining trust in humans. After a veterinary visit, the cat will go to a foster home and eventually be adopted by a family who understands the commitment of pet ownership. A rarer event is for one of our longtime resident ferals to be adopted, but I've seen it happen. Most often, the cat has gone to live in the loving home of one of our caregivers. Given the choice of being homeless and living with one of the few humans who have shown me kindness, I would prefer the latter. The problem is that most of my caregivers already have at least several felines living with them, so my residential status is not likely to change. Having accepted this, I ask only that I be allowed to live in my small area unmolested. I enjoy the same simple things in life as any creature, the sun on my back, a light breeze, a good meal, and the affection of those I trust. I'm used to evading the roaming dogs, the skunks who like to share my food, and even the people who drive their automobiles recklessly through the boatyard. I even survived brutal winters thanks to the shelters my caregivers have provided. But now I find that I must also defend my right to live to those humans who profess a concern for animal welfare and who would like to kill me. These misinformed people believe that by eradicating feral colonies, the homeless cat problem will be solved. What they fail to understand is that it is a human problem that must be addressed. As long as there are irresponsible pet owners who fail to spay and neuter their animals and who regard us as disposable objects, there will always be colonies of homeless cats. But there's never a good or moral reason for abandoning an animal. I know this. I am your abandoned pet. Signed, Mickey. And this story was submitted by Kathleen Downey, a volunteer for the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, on behalf of her good friend, Mickey, back in 1999. So everybody have a good holiday season, and we'll be back with you in January. Thank you for listening to Community Cats Podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 